Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm the host, Emily Trenum. And this week, I'm pleased to welcome Joni Laney and Magali Cruz, who are involved with on the board of the Binghampton Community Land Trust. And so I've been trying to get them on. We're trying to get our schedules aligned. I'm really happy they're both here today. So this is such an important topic in the whole affordable housing infrastructure here in Memphis, which we've talked about frequently on this show. So welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So let's just, and, and I'm, I don't know if I mentioned this to you. We, I don't know if we'll need this. If you've listened to the show, I have a jargon bell um, that I ring because the planning and development, affordable housing, there's tons of jargon. I try to avoid it, but if someone uses <laughs> jargon, so if you hear the bell, that means one of us used some jargon and I want, I'm going to stop and we're going to sort of, we're going to define that. But so uh, on those lines, um, one of you just give us a plain language definition about what a community land trust is. I'd say we can both give our definition. Um, okay. I'll start. Uh, well, a community land trust is basically a kind of group of people from different sectors of housing. So you have the homeowner, you have the banker, the um, attorney, the community development person, other residents in the neighborhood that come together and say, we are going to take aside this um, value or like this arbitrary number of like this land is worth X amount of dollars and remove it from the effects of the rise and fall of housing prices. So if it does increase, well, you're already taking, like decreasing how much the house would be worth by whatever the land is worth. And if it falls, you have that safeguard of, of that property as well. Um, so, I jo- along? <laughs> so Joni, add to that. And then also, if you would, I mean, you personally, I mean, um, have been working to bring a community land trust to Binghampton, I think for at least 10 years. And so add to that definition if, or how you see it, but also what motivated you to say, you know, we really need this, uh, this kind of affordable housing in, in Binghampton? Well, a community land trust is a, a very uh, significant means of maintaining affordable housing in a neighborhood. And what started me on this journey and, and people in this neighborhood was the beginning real obvious uh, gentrification of this neighborhood when housing prices started to double and then triple and homeowners were suddenly all mostly you know, middle-class folks and a lot of the immigrant families, a lot of the refugee families and a lot of the African-American renting families have been pushed out of the neighborhood. That's what started it. And what, what I would just add to what Magali said, the community owns the land, people buy the home, the land trust provides a subsidy to the home. So say it's selling for 125, you take the land out of there, that might be $12,000. We provide a subsidy to the homeowner that will drop that price down to 85,000 or 75,000 to make it affordable. The difference is that when that family decides to sell, that subsidy that we got for the homeowner stays with the house. In normal banking, the homeowner takes it with them when they sell. In this case, it stays with the house. And so the house is mostly remains affordable with a little bit of appreciation over time that we have that we have uh, built into um, 
the contract with the homeowners. And the community is a part of helping maintain that property and re relationship with the people in the property. And so it is a, a whole different way of looking at homeownership in this country. So it's really a form of cooperative ownership, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is... um. My understanding about community land trust is that this is a model that's been using, been used elsewhere. Um, and give me one or two examples of, and Joni, I know you have some knowledge of maybe North Carolina of a community land trust there, but, but um, without sort of going into the history, are there a couple examples of places this has really worked well? The couple that come to mind is um, New Mexico and Philadelphia, where they in New Mexico they bought like acres of land, which would in itself already be a little bit more affordable than trying to buy inner city, and developed um, a garden, community garden, developed housing. One, it doesn't necessarily need to be just realist. Um, what's it called? Single family development. It could be a commercial strip where we want to make sure we give opportunity for first-time business owners that want to, you know, kickstart their business. Um, some put a theater on it. And Philadelphia, I think they're a little bit just focused on single family and the same model where they're building like two-story townhouses, which are in the trust, and they are selling them um, the, same, the same principles that we do as the Big Hampton Community Land Trust. And what about you, Joni? You were going to say something. Oh, I was, I mean, Burlington, Vermont is a very well-known and long-term, uh, uh, no, not Vermont. It's Burlington, Massachusetts, right? No, it is Vermont. I get all, yeah. I get all my northern states mixed up. It's, but anyway, it's, it's yeah. Burlington, Vermont, and I think that was the first, if I'm remembering yeah. correctly. Well, actually, the first was in Albany, Georgia, set up by African-American families um, in 1969. Wow. Who, and they bought 5,600 acres of land out in the country for for black farmers to come and um, work the land and have the, the land in communal ownership. That was really the first in this country. It's been in Israel and, and in uh, India for years and years. Okay. All right. So it's a tried and true model. So... And, and one important aspect, and you mentioned this, Joni, is I think that, um, well, I think a lot of people don't know. I think people know that there are government programs that can subsidize um, the purchase of affordable housing, the development of affordable housing, and the purchase of it of homeowners, low and moderate income homeowners. Of course, there's not nearly enough of that to go around. That's a conversation for another day. But those subsidies do not last forever for the most part. I mean, sometimes they go for 10 or 20 years during that time. The, the homeowner has to sell it to another affordable homeowner, but at some point those expire and the house goes on to appreciates to whatever market rate is. And in this scenario, the, the subsidy, the, the housing is permanently affordable. Isn't that right? Right. Yes. Built into the contract. Yes. So you mentioned that um, you were interested in Binghampton in particular because you had you had started noticing that it was starting to gentrify. So is that the kind of neighborhood that this tool works best or could it work anywhere? Yes. But if it's at that tipping point, you could still at least be able to negotiate with property owners and still get some under the community land trust model. So um, the community land trust was formalized a couple years ago and you're doing your first project. So I want to hear about that because, you know, who the partners are and where it is and where it's at, how the pandemic's affected it, because I know that's coming going to be finished soon, I think, and want to tell people about it. Magali, do you want to start on that one? Sure. So this has been, feels like forever, like at least two years ongoing. Um, definitely the pandemic happening has caused drastic increases in 
um, the pricing of materials. And in the meantime, um, families have been working to do the home buyer education to familiar themselves with the home buyer process, um, working to acquire the financial like counseling and means necessary to actually qualify for a mortgage to purchase it. But it has been definitely, it's more involved than your traditional, just I want to buy a home at, at the market. You know, you get to learn about these families, you get to like coach them and, and connect them with resources where it's just like, traditionally, you'll just probably, yes, take a home bar education class to qualify for that subsidy. You get into the home, you never hear about any, any possible counseling or resources available to the home buyer, which I can call, talk from experience. I've like purchased the house, hadn't needed to reach out to anyone for help anymore. Well, in a community lantern, it's like you, you involve them. They are part of your circle. You get to know them. And whenever you can plug them in, like they're right, you know, just a phone call away, you get to really build that connection with them. Um, but the building process has been slow. But when that time also getting to know the families has been great. How did you acquire the property? Um, the property was uh, an abandoned home that a that a man did not live in, but his family thought he lived in. They were from Arkansas. And um, he died in his rooming house and left this house and several trailers of uh, furnishings that he intended to put in the house once he picked it fixed it up. Well, the back whole back area of the house was falling in from disuse, rain, and the family graciously agreed to sell it to us for $25,000 and Patriot Bank, with the help of Michelle Couch, uh, provided the grant. The family deeded us the, the property and we were able to partner with United Housing to get the house cleared off the land although we did spend some time trying to figure out if we could rehab it. And then United Housing is building the house in partnership with Urban Equity, which is a, a building business started by Jamie Lee in our neighborhood. Okay. So there's a, a lot, lot of partners. Yeah. It sounds like including a lot of neighborhood stakeholders. So, so, and so tell me about the house itself. Like, um, is it, you know, sort of traditional architectural style for Binghamton. How big is it? Um, it's uh, two beds, no, three beds, two baths. And I think it fits in very well with the aesthetics of Binghamton. United Housing did a very good job of surveying the other other properties and making sure it fits. That's not a cookie cutter house, which you see a lot of now around Memphis. Um, as far as, you know, deciding on the size and exactly how it would look like uh, the community is very involved as well. Like we saw plans for the house like a year before it was even um, going to be built and said like, Hey, what do you think about these? How many rooms do you think you should, they should have in the house? How many bathrooms? Um, what's a nice square footage and what's the, you know, good cost per square footage. And again, United housing did a very good job of surveying and making sure the, the aesthetic fits with the neighborhood. It's two stories. It's one. Okay. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm talking to Joni Laney and Magali Cruz, and we're talking about the Binghampton Community Land Trust. So um, it sounds like you've done outreach and engagement with some families. So do you have um, a family that's interested in moving in? I guess a two-part question, and then also... Um, you know, it's for, you mentioned this, um, Magali, it's different from your traditional home purchase process, you know, making it very clear to homeowners, they don't own the land. I mean, you're buying into this great model of community, but it's different. Um, so do you have buyers in mind and, um, and are they excited about being part of this, this new endeavor for Memphis? They definitely are. And like, yes, way much more involved than your traditional method of home buying. And I think they, you know, even, you know, it's just one property. We don't want to get the waterfall straight up. And it's like, we're at the end need to, you know, do like a lottery <laughs> draw for the house. Like that's not what we're doing this for. It's to, you know, really 
give opportunity and grow as you know we expand our capacity. But definitely, they're very uh, interested. It's very engaging. Um, one of the families, um, they're now in the qualifying uh, step for a mortgage to get into the into the house. Um, a lot of learning that they've had to do possibly in this process. But overall, um, very much understanding what the model is and knowing that you're buying into it and you are now even more deeply rooted into our community as you'll be a homeowner and not a renter, which, you know, that's very unstabilizing. Um, they, yeah, it's just, it's a very positive experience. Again, I was very excited that we were building our first house, like maybe we should, you know, get get our net thrown a little bit wider but as at the at the end of the day we only have one property we don't want to say like hey this is a new shiny thing of how to become a homeowner and then you know only one person gets it but well that's a great transition because i wanted to ask about that what are the what's the um you know what are the goals in terms of how many units you'd ultimately like to have. I know in some places, you know, it's a big piece of land and units are on it. It sounds like because being Hampton's already developed that it would be scattered site. They wouldn't all be contiguous. Also in, you know, I'm guessing in being Hampton, it's getting expensive to acquire land. So do you want to do more units in being Hampton? Yes, absolutely. As far as the number, um, I haven't crunched the math or <laughs> Or looked at like stats of exactly what's that critical mass but I would say definitely um, families that have been in the neighborhood for so so many years have worked and continuously kept you know falling short of becoming homeowners giving them the opportunity so how many families those are in Binghampton um, seeking a way to acquire properties for them would be my my guess of whatever the number that is that's the amount that we need what about so such a it's such a slow process. You know, we've been doing this and um, what we're hoping is that this is a model for the city that, that we will be able to say, look, here's the house. This is the homeowner. This is the community involvement. We invite other neighborhoods, Orange Mound, South Memphis, Frazier. We invite you to consider this is another means, not the only one and not a competing one, but another means of, of producing affordability in your neighborhood so that eventually I think the dream of all of us at CTC, at, at the Binghamton Community Land Trust, at United Housing is that it's kind of their little their little neighborhood uh, CLTs that manage you know four or five or six properties and they're they're run administered by a central hub that does the fundraising the deeds the you know lawyer work the all the technical stuff that ordinary people on the ground may not be able to do, but then the neighborhoods still have a voice because they are in, um, you know, on the board of the CLT in their neighborhood. So it's kind of like a spoke hub model. That's kind of our, our dream. Okay. So Joni, at one time, I think you told me that um, you thought that some longtime Binghampton residents might be willing to, you know, if not donate their property, make it available on a, uh, you know, on a lower price for a land trust model. Is that is is that kind of strategy something you're going to be pursuing to try to get more properties in the Binghampton neighborhood? I think certainly when they see this house and they see what unfolds, I think then we can have those conversations. The trick is that you really have to have paid your full mortgage before your uh, house can be easily donated your, or the land to the land trust. And most of the families I know who are very passionate about affordable housing do not own their homes yet. So that would be a conversation I would want to have once we get this model set. But I'm not sure how realistic it is until we get more administrative umbrella to help us do that kind of research. How can you do that? But there are a number of people in this neighborhood I think would be very interested when it's time to move, uh, uh, you know, doing something like that. So not to, not to, you know, go too much down that rabbit hole, but in that scenario, the homeowners would donate the land 
um, to the land trust. And then, okay, that, that's, that's interesting. So, um, so you, the way you're sort of describing it is there'd be the Binghamton land trust. There'd be one, maybe in Nutbush, maybe there'd be one in Klondike, Smoky City, Orange Mound. I mean, we can, let's just stream big, right? I mean, I love this. And, and then there'd be some kind of a coordinating, um, coordinating entity that would help raise money and fundraise so um is there is there interest like that from other neighborhoods are you seeing that oh i think ctc is very committed to uh introducing this model in neighborhoods where they're doing their organizing and i do think there's some neighborhoods interested magali do you know of any that have actually said they are i've heard um and this is probably like at least since I don't work for CTC, I don't know if that will be necessary to leave in or not, but I've heard like in Douglas Medical District, um, Orange Mound, South Memphis, at least interest into affordable housing and willing to consider or look at the community land trust model. I do remember. So you both are reminding me that, um, and I'm not gonna ring my jargon bell, but CTC is the Center for Transforming Communities, which is a nonprofit actually located in Binghampton, but works throughout the city doing community organizing, um, among many other things. And so the Binghampton Community Land Trust at the moment is under that umbrella, correct? Exactly. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, to me, Orange Mound seems like a great candidate because, you know, it's well organized. There's a lot of grassroots activity there. There's a lot of concern among the citizens about, you know, home ownership, the, the presence of investors in the neighborhood, uh, possible gentrification, but there hasn't been, I don't think there's been a ton of speculation. I'm not an expert, um, but it seems like that would be a great time to, because it hasn't reached that. I don't think it's reached that. There's a lot of worries, but it hasn't really reached that tipping point yet where people are just, you know, snapping stuff up. So. Well, and the other thing about Orange Mound is it has such an amazing civic spirit. And I think that really helps with the development of a land trust because it does take time and you do have to be committed to each other and to the neighborhood. And that was what I loved when we moved into this neighborhood in 2002, the incredible neighborliness and community spirit of all these different people from all these different places, you know, all over the world. And that I think is a wonderful place to start a community land trust because the community's there and the trust is there. You just need the land. <laughs> you need the middle piece. And I think Orange Mound is a really good example of that as well. Yeah, I do see this, and you two are much you know, more experts on this than me, but I guess I do see this working even better in neighborhoods that have some of that neighborhood infrastructure already in place. And as you said, Binghampton has that and Orange Mound does as well. I don't know as much, I don't know as much about um I mean, yeah, I don't know as much about what's what's present in the other neighborhoods we talked about, but for sure, those two. So um, I guess last question to me, um, the thing about the the community land trust models, one of the differentiators I think is very important is the whole governance, the sort of collective decision making. I realize at this moment, there's only one house, but talk about how that and, and other other land trusts, how that works, you know, why that's so important to the process, and then um, how you would how you would see that working here. Either one of you. Just clarification, like the the importance of the structure of the administrative body for a community land trust. Well, I feel like it's you know it's community ownership of the land, and so there's you know collective decision making on a variety of things that, you know, or ordinarily individual homeowners um, make for themselves. Joan, did you want to address that? You're nodding your head. 
Well, I think Magali touched on it when she was telling about the uh, the nature of a community land trust when you were talking about the board the, mm-hmm. who who makes the decision. So I was just nodding because I, I I'm affirming that. And you might want to reiterate that, Magali, who you said was on the board of the from the neighborhood. I mean, of the land trust. Okay, sorry, I'm really struggling with that question. The importance of like the structure, and especially when it comes to community ownership models is it's like a pie and it's divided into thirds where one has to be um, the CLT homeowners themselves because you want to know exactly, you know, what is a question that they might have or something that's not working with their property or like they want to negotiate some terms. And it's like you are offering or you are working with this, the person that's receiving the, the house to be included in the decision making. And then other residents in the neighborhood themselves because you want to understand want them to also understand the model so if there is some question as to like well how come you know this property is being valued differently than this other property or it's like how can we adapt ourselves to be more also inclusive of that model of well the land is owned by everyone including the community other members in the community and being able to you know misconceptions address misconceptions there and then other just community partners that bring skills or insight into, I guess, more of the boring stuff of like how to do the closing, how to actually um, sell and purchase properties or other b- local businesses that want to invest in the neighborhood and want to ensure that it's thriving and um, want to be included in the decision making process. That's so that's overly important in trying to make sure that if a decision is made, it's as inclusive as possible and it's conscious from multiple perspectives. Like I could say, um, why can't we buy five lots? Well, an attorney, a real estate agent, or another um, member in the neighborhood may be like, hey, one of them is actually my brother's or my sister's or was aired to from my grandmother. It's like that property means something to me. And then the attorney and the real estate agent and the business partner might be like, well, I mean, if you do want to purchase it, maybe I could assist you know, or I can tell you why it is a good decision or not. Or like, if it is an heir property, what can you do to clear it or get the con- the consent of the heirs to acquire it? So it's, it's a very multifaceted moving parts. And if you actually bring all those people that are part of this puzzle together, we can probably figure it out and put it together. So it sounds like there's a combination of, you know, technical expertise, um, owners, you know, non-owner community stakeholders sort of coming together to um, to sort of set the vision and actually do the governance. Right. Right. Okay. So when's the, when's the house going to be finished? I know you mentioned there'd be a groundbreaking. You probably don't have a date for that yet. So, um, or if you do for sure, tell us, but if not, um, when can people expect to, you know, hear an announcement about it and maybe get an opportunity to see the home if they want to? Um, I'm personally excited to, you know, to have the project finished. So when's that going to be done? I'm like scared to say <laughs> in case I jinx it. You, you, you can ballpark it sometime this summer. <laughs> sometime That's what we're hoping. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully by the end of the year. <laughs> but I don't want to, I, I couldn't say it's an exact even month possibly. But it's under construction now. Yes, it is. Okay. What we would love is to have the homeowners introduce the homeowners when we, op- when we open the home and we show the model to the city. We'd like that all be done in one and thank the funders and the partners. So it's probably going to be later in the summer rather than earlier, but, but things are moving and hopefully we'll let you know. Well, I'm, you know, have been hearing about, you know, bringing this model to Memphis for a long time and I'm, excited that it happened and just really admire the two of you. And I know you're, you've got a whole other group of people you're working with, but thank you for leading, helping lead this effort because this is a, a very important work. And the time is, you know, 
it's urgent now with what's happening in our local real estate market. So the time couldn't be better to bring community land trusts to Memphis. So, so I've been, you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis. I've been talking to Joni Lady and Magali Cruz from the Binghampton Community Land Trust. And so both of you, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And thank you for your interest in the CL. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome to the second half of Memphis Metropolis, everybody. This uh, part of the show, I'm joined with by Austin Harrison, who is one of our regular commentators. Uh, Austin's a local community development consultant and also a PhD candidate at Georgia State. Hopefully, a new, a newly minted course. That whole process takes a while. I realize I don't want to pressure you on the air here, but so welcome back, Austin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Always excited to be here. So we're going to be continuing the discussion about community land trusts. Austin, you have some, you know, have some technical expertise in that area and then also actually worked at a community land trust earlier in your career before you moved to Memphis. So, so I'd like to start out. I, this is a question I asked Magali Cruz and Joni Laney as well, but, um, Take us through sort of, I don't want to say from an academic perspective, because, you yeah. know, I don't want to ring the jargon bell, but yeah. what's, the, what's how is a, a community land trust defined in the community development dictionary? There it is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll make sure that dictionary is uh, free of free of jargon. So, uh, so yeah, I think it's, it's best to start briefly touching on the history. So community land trusts have a really fascinating History, uh, the first land trusts were actually in southwest Georgia in Albany. Uh, Albany, I say it right for my Georgians out there. Uh, Albany, Georgia, and there were uh, leaders of uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC for short, that partnered with the Ford Foundation in 1968 to begin studying uh, land ownership practices, collective land ownership practices in Israel. And so they went back and forth to Israel for a while. And then in 1969, New Georgia's community, New Communities Georgia, Inc., was the first rural land trust. Um, and then through the 70s and 80s, we didn't see a land trust really become more prominent and sort of formed in the way uh, we think about them today uh, as these, um, you know, the definition I would say is any nonprofit um, that has a collective land ownership structure. Um, it's in, and usually, you know, that could be for affordable housing. It could also be for commercial properties. It could also be for agriculture. Um, and the most common format that they preserve affordability or preserve community ownership through is a 99-year ground lease. Um, so an organization like the Binghamton Community Land Trust will uh, either purchase a property, acquire a property, donate it, um, whatever their acquisition strategy is. Their acquisition strategies are uh, just like that of you know CDCs, community development corporations, other 501c3s. Um, but then once it's acquired by the land trust, the organization leases the property to the homeowner for a 99-year ground lease, and that lease follows generationally. Um, so a lot of the work I did at the housing department in Athens Land Trust were around, you know, heirs' property, uh, were around, um, you know, acquiring property through quiet title action or quick claim deeds um, from neighborhood residents that wanted to uh, donate or sell the property to to the land trust. So, um, so that 99-year ground lease is really what preserves the affordability um, for the homeowner and allows the impacts of increased property values, the impacts of um, you know adjacent growth, and and sort of you know as it was mentioned uh, by the Binghamton folks, sort of the gentrification processes that we see in in other cities and are sort of beginning to see in some um, small pockets in Memphis. Um, it, it allows that to not, th those impacts of that growth to not be directly felt by the homeowner and, um, and then still allows the homeowner to access some of that equity uh, on the back end when they go to sell the property. Of course, it's not as much, you know, getting into the flip side of the coin, it's not as much of the equity they would see 
uh, from just a market property. The kind of the whole idea of the CLT is it takes properties out of the traditional housing market in a way that uh, hopefully is um, is it allows for individuals to access home ownership. Um, I'll just go ahead and say in Athens, I think one of the best ways, Athens, Georgia, where I worked for the Community Land Trust, one of the most successful things we did was sort of created a pipeline of homeowners through, we also had a number of rental properties that were in the community land trust. And we would work, we would have a full-time housing counselor who would work with our renters to get their um, finances in a place where they could purchase a community land trust home. And so I think, and then allowing them to um, be a homeowner for the first time in a CLT home and then sell and go purchase a full market rate house. I think that was sort of a, a transitionary aspect in, in these appreciating markets to, to make home ownership accessible for families and then uh, prepare them to sort of go on to, into the private market where they can, you know, experience the full uh, financial benefits of home ownership. Well, I guess um, that's interesting because I think of it as a, an affordable housing model. And I guess I didn't really, um, I did, haven't thought through the fact that it really is about the cooperative ownership of land, which can be a lot of used a lot of different ways for farming, housing, commercial, as you said. Um, but the, in my mind, and of course, this is my sort of, you know, theoretical fantasy mind, I guess I, I've always thought of the, the, you know, community aspects of it, of the model as being sort of very compelling. I mean, cooperative living and, you know, shared decision-making, but it, but it sounds like, you know, that you would kind of do it and you'd stay, but um, it sounds like it's, it can be a stepping stone to, to the private market. Yeah. A a lot of very, um, you know, full functioning uh, CLTs that have been around for 20, 30 years, you know, some of the oldest were kind of uh, existing ones, obviously starting in the 60s and 70s, but more of these uh, full functioning um, urban CLTs, especially, uh, were more started in the 90s and 2000s. And uh, Burlington, Vermont is kind of seen as the gold standard, um, primarily because they had a very cooperative mayor at the time that was grow that as the CLT was growing, a gentleman by the name of Bernie Sanders, that some of us may know, uh, who was willing to work with and dispose of a lot of publicly owned land into the land trust. And so they have had um, a number of successful stories of uh, families, you know, coming into the CLT, living in a home five, 10, 15 years, selling the home, getting some equity from that sell, using that equity to be a down payment for a non-CLT property and uh, having success and were able to create additional wealth that they can pass down generationally. Um, so. So, so essentially the the nonprofits, community land trusts are nonprofits, the nonprofit owns the land and leases it to the to the resident and, and the, the resident, which is, you know, a homeowner frequently owns the homes, the house, but not the land. And when the homeowner goes to sell the house, that the house can appreciate, but it's capped to keep the, to keep the property affordable in perpetuity, but still allow the homeowners to build assets. Is that correct? That is correct. And it's important to note that all of these details, what we're kind of laying out is the framework. But if you go to Burlington, if you go, Pittsburgh has an uh, active community land trust, Athens, when I work for, there's Atlanta has a new one that's starting. All of these different cities are going to kind of adapt the land trust model to their market. And in a, in a Bay Area and a Los Angeles, you're going to have different you know, equity thresholds, different sort of uh, buyback agreements and um, sort of, you know, transition of property uh, on the back end. And it's going to look differently. Those numbers are going to look differently than it will maybe in Memphis or will in some of these other cities. And so I think it's important to note that we cannot have a conversation about CLTs without, you know, contextualizing them in within the market realities that that CLT is, uh, is operating in. Well, and I've always, and again, again, in my sort of mind, you know, community land trust, you know, the property was contiguous and it could be um, overemphasizing slash romanticizing this community piece. Um, but, you know, it's contiguous and people are living on a big piece of property. The homes are sort of like a subdivision or, mm-hmm. and, uh, but certainly in Binghampton, that's not going to be the case. It's just too difficult to acquire property. So is this mod is this model that's in my mind uh, traditional or is it more apt to be 
you know, scatter site where, where the community land trust can acquire property. So you don't have people sort of living together cooperatively. Well, it's, it's interesting. I can't, I don't know how generalizable um, this specific model is, but when I think about, again, going back to Athens, Georgia, uh, near the University of Georgia, where I worked, we were founded in the mid nineties and the founder was creating the CLT to execute the exact vision you're laying out. It was originally designed um, in more of a rural part of Athens to be you know, a large area of land where they were going to sort of have this cooperative uh, kind of commune type, you know, maybe that's a strong word to use, but just to kind of get the vision in people's heads, right? This kind of cooperative, we're going to own, yeah. own the land, farm the land, live yeah. on it. Together. Gardening together, maybe. Gardening together. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's it, And, and it, I think it's a, in a lot of ways at its core, it is that sort of anti-capitalist, anti-market intervention, right? It gets a lot of uh, support from from folks that, that want to see housing not be a commodity, that want to see it to be a collective own. And then I think the, the importance of, of power and, and, and sort of and gentrification, especially um, what I would refer to as political displacement. And before you ring the jargon bell, let me define that. You know, political displacement is the, is the idea of, of, of residents losing the power, losing control over their land. And, and in times when I talk to residents and neighborhoods all across Memphis, that seems to be what is most important, even in a disinvested area, even in an area that isn't seeing um, the, the 2x, 3x housing price appreciation that Joni and Magali were talking about. Um, but still that need to, you know, you and I've talked a lot about in the past about investor ownership, out of town owners, not having properties on a market where Memphians can access it if investors are just selling to other investors. And the CLT, I think, is a tangible way to operationalize um, that that power balance and and get and, and if nothing else, get residents meaningfully in control of purchasing and acquiring and owning property in their own neighborhood. Well, I think people are concerned about you know losing control of land. Um, early, you know, a couple several months ago, I had Brittany Thornton from Juice Orange Mound on the show just to talk about a campaign they had a billboard campaign they had urging people in Orange Mound to hang on to their land and not just to sell it, you know, to someone who came along uh, because, it, you know, it's an asset, it's your asset, but also to the, to the extent that property in that neighborhood is going to appreciate, the owners can benefit from that. Uh, the people who live in the neighborhood should benefit from property appreciation in a neighborhood. So, so, but let's talk a little bit about, I mean, the one here is just getting going. Um, and we talked a little bit about governance uh, with Joni and Magali and the different stakeholders that were involved, uh, residents, you know, residents and then, you know, neighbors, a lot of different people that are coming together, the fin- financial services industry coming together for governance. But you've got some experience, you know, working with, but also, you know, sort of observing sort of fully functioning community land trust. So what does that look like? And then what do you think are the, some of the elements, you know, governance and decision-making elements that make it successful? So we were, we were a little um, special, a little unique in Athens, uh, because unlike Burlington and other, um, you know, more mature uh, CLTs, we didn't just do one thing. So, uh, you know, Burlington is really focused on the home ownership piece and the affordability piece. We had a housing department. That's where, that's where I worked for about a year, um, worked closely with sort of our affordable housing arm. Um, and we had, you know, a number of rental properties, as I mentioned earlier, I think we had a, uh, low income housing tax credit, uh, affordable housing project that had about 150 units. And then we had, I think another, we were close to 200 total units when I was there of rental property. And then we had another, I think 35 to 40 home ownership, you know, detached houses for, for residents. And let me just say, you know, I think the first thing, um, that, is true across land trusts is how long it takes to, to get to that point. So, um, you know, the organization was founded in 1994, I believe. Uh, so it's over, you know, 27 years old now. Um, and, and so I think, you know, one property is a big win for Binghampton. Um, but, but I think the, the growth and the expectation of growth is really gonna, uh, depend on, um, strategic partnerships and how, 
the the land trust can can think creatively about acquiring land because if it, if you're just a non market actor in a <laughs> in a market environment, it's hard to to kind of grow uh, quickly. And and so um, so that was one piece. Is we had the housing piece, and then we had two other kind of departments. We also had a, a community agriculture department that did farmers markets, that did youth agriculture. Uh, we had an abandoned school that the community land trust was uh, working to to purchase and own. And we did a lot of programming out of that out of that school. And then um, we're also thinking about getting into some commercial development. At the time I was working there um, around food access and a potential, uh, you know, having the community land trust own a potential grocery store for the community. And then the third thing that was really interesting and I think could be a potential opportunity to replicate here in Memphis is in the South, you also have pretty affluent, well-resourced farmers and owners of large swaths of land. And, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, north of us and, um, and, you know, Somerville, Eads, you know, all of these, it's been in the family for a while. They don't want to see it turn into a Walmart. And so they would also use the land trust to, you know, create uh, this, this existing deed of, of trust that would not, uh, that would again, take that property away so that it would stay in the family and, and, the, and the family wouldn't turn around and sell it to a gas station or a, or a you know, superstore. And it would kind of preserve, um, there was a lot of also work around, you know, nature conservation at Athens. We did a lot of work of, you know, strategically preserving um, wildlife land as well for, you know, we did a lot of work with the USDA. And, um, and so that was kind of our three options, but the, but the, the land trust and the land conservation piece was actually kind of a revenue source for us. And we would use a lot of, it would be a fee for service that, you know, well-to-do farmers in rural Georgia would pay for, and that would go to fund the housing work. We go to fund the community ag work. So That's very interesting. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. And the topic of the day is community land trusts. Um, and we're talking to Austin Harrison, who's a local community development consultant. So Austin, um, before we started recording today, we talked a little bit about the trust piece. Um, well, not, of course, yeah. trust in the CLT means something else, but the importance of trust. And that sort of gets into, you know, governance, representation. I know this is something that you um, learned about when you were involved with the, the Athens one. So, um, so talk a little bit about that, if you would. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think it's, it's, again, especially in the South, um, if, we, if we think about the model critically and, and through the lens of, of history of land ownership, right? Uh, you have an organization that's saying, we will own the land, you will lease the land from us. Um, that's familiar to many, many uh, white and black families in the South, right? That, that was um, a, a, a long-term, very similar tool uh, called sharecropping. That was uh, ownership practice up until, you know, in, in generations that are still alive, right? Up until the 50s, 60s, and 70s, that was, um, you know, well done throughout communities in the South. And so I think that creates um, a trickier environment to build the trust of the community and, and, it, and it makes operationalizing and sort of applying um, ideas of community ownership even more important, right? So there is, um, there's sort of guidelines that, and, and let me just mention here quickly for anyone who's interested in learning more of your own and we're kind of um, just inspired by this conversation, want to dig deeper, uh, groundedsolutions.org, um, that's all one word. Um, is sort of the national advocacy policy group for community land trusts. And they have tons and tons of resources um, that we'll dive into far more detail than we've been able to in this brief conversation. Um, but they also uh, work with a sort of a CLT certification process that you know enforces um, specific representation on the boards of CLTs. So one third of your, co- of your community land trust board has to be residents. Um, in CLT properties. Um, another one third is, is residents in the neighborhoods that you're working in. Um, and then another third of, of, you know, CLT staff adjacent or, or traditional, quote unquote, traditional, you know, nonprofit board uh, types. And, and But the, but the two thirds of the board is really meant to be the community, right? It's really meant to be residents, people who live in the house, people who live in the neighborhoods. And, and I think going above and beyond doing that, which, which we did in Athens, but going above and beyond to 
uh, have that long-term commitment in those neighborhoods and in those communities. And as we say a lot in the nonprofit space, moving at the speed of trust, right? That is even more critical in a CLT work because if if the community isn't doesn't feel like they meaningfully own it, we can call it a community land trust all we want. But if the lowercase t trust isn't there and the community doesn't feel like they own it, then it's hard to, it begins to get at um, it, some of these power imbalance tools that we're talking about, you know, using it as a tool to level the playing field, the community really needs to feel like it's theirs and that they can use that as a tool. And if it just becomes an organization that's kind of based in a community, but not rooted in the community, right? That difference between being there and like meaningfully being there and really uh, having deep ties in the community, like Magali and Joni do in Binghampton, that's, that's the difference, right? And, and who is driving the creation, who's driving the growth of the CLT, um, is it a outside nonprofit or is it the residents that are really feel like they're this is this is theirs and they own this? I think that's um, it's critical. You know, you and I talk about that across the board in community work. You know, getting uh, community leaders invested in, in in giving them the tools they need to build their own communities. But I think especially in a CLT and especially in the South with the history of of land ownership, um, particularly in Black and Brown communities, uh, that it becomes even more important. I think. Okay. So it sounds like, um, you know, it's important to have intentionality on the front end. And so you're not just checking in the boxes for, yeah, we've got our one third covered, whether it's, you know, whether it's checking the boxes in terms of who, who is supposed to be represented um, or checking the boxes from a demographic perspective. It's more than that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it doesn't, it's nothing you can put on a timeline. I mean, you you know this better, better than anyone with, with the work you've done in your career that, um, that that trust building piece is is going to move at the pace it's going to move. And I think as uh, I think the Binghamton group seems to have done a really good job, you know, it's, it's residents that have come up with the idea that are pushing for the idea for a while. Uh, but as it continues to go to other neighborhoods, I think really ensuring that uh, resident voice is is what is driving the discussions and, and is um, not being forgotten or not, uh, not being lost for, you know, opportunities to grow or opportunities to expand, but the residents are really, um, you know, kept, kept in the, kept in the center of the conversation. Well, and you and I both know if they're not, you know, they'll, they'll say so. Exactly. And and you'll hear about it. So, um, so we talked a little bit, I guess last sort of discussion area. Um, I talked a little bit with Joni and Magali about, about what other neighborhoods they potentially, you know, it's very difficult to acquire land in Binghampton and hopefully they'll be able to get some additional parcels, but what other neighborhoods they thought it, it, it would, this model would work. And then I want to get your thoughts about, I think, feel like you and I have had a number of conversations about, you know, where the need uh, for you know affordable housing intersects with real estate market dynamics, yeah. and that's one of the um, one of the I won't say a concern I've had, but you know there's got to be people got to want to buy the units, okay. and some neighborhoods. I'm just using that as an example. Let's just say Hollywood neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, you could say, you know, Hollywood neighborhood eventually is probably going to gentrify. It's relatively close in. Let's go ahead and set up a community land trust. But as a protective buyer, you know, you can buy this house, which includes the land, or this house that doesn't include the land. And so what's the sweet spot in terms of, and I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what's the sweet spot in terms of neighborhoods where you're going to get in on the front end and really it's a great tool to preserve affordability in a neighborhood that's changing, but you still got demand for the units. Yeah. I think a lot of it gets back to, and I, and I hope this you know doesn't come across as a non-answer, right? But I think going back to the beginning of our conversation, what, what problem are you looking to solve, right? What, what is, is, as residents of that neighborhood, what is the um, what is the goal? Is, if, is the goal affordable housing? Is the goal affordable home ownership? Is the goal, you know, price appreciation? Um, then that, you know, to your point, the market dynamics, well, any of these conversations, the market dynamics are really important. But, uh, but I mean, at that point, does we want to build affordable home ownership? But does that make sense? I mean, even 
outside of the land trust? Does owning a home in Hollywood, is it going to appreciate to the point where that is a wealth building tool? Um, or is this just a housing stability way? Are you just trying to keep people in their homes? Then maybe there's more of a rental CLT market and, and it's and you keep affordable rentals low and it, and and that sort of brings in housing stability. And then the third piece, you know, so you have affordable home ownership, you have housing stability, and then is it just power? Is it just uh, c- control of the land, control of the neighborhood, giving residents meaningful control and what the future of their neighborhood is going to look like? Then if, if that's the goal, then, you know, again, it's still market, market still matters in terms of how you will acquire properties and how successful you'll be in acquiring properties. But if you think of a Hollywood or a new Chicago or a Hyde Park or a Riverview, Kansas um, neighborhood and sort of in South Memphis, you know, I, I, you can make an argument that that's the sweet spot for proactive land trust activity, um, as opposed to maybe more, you know, if, if there's if it's already experienced unification or if it is sort of at that tipping point, I think that could be another sweet spot of neighborhoods that um, are maybe five, six years away. Again, none of us have crystal balls, but if we just t- see the way the market's going, where purchase prices are going, especially in COVID as the supply is really constrained and you're seeing um, neighborhoods, you know, appreciate very quickly. Are some of those tipping point neighborhoods possibilities to, you know, both create housing stability and affordable home ownership? And then maybe you focus on sort of the uh, more va- hyper vacant or uh, systemically disinvested areas to create land ownership and to maybe do, you know, uh, community gardens, moto own programs, uh, you know, uh, vacant lot reutilization ideas. And it's less about brick and mortar homes and more about um, having the community do with, with, with the land in their neighborhood what they would like to see done. You know, I think it's sort of operationalizing that community power. Well, I feel like we've got a lot more, I mean, people have t- been talking about doing a community land trust in Memphis for a long time. And I feel like we've got a lot more data now to rely on in terms of tipping point neighborhoods. So we're not just um, relying on our guts. So, um, so what are, and to me, that makes sense. If you're going to go for the home ownership model and setting aside the rental, um, the home ownership model, it seems to me that tipping point neighborhoods would be the best, maybe the Heights or maybe, you know, some of the neighborhoods Klondike Smoky City that are near Crosstown that, um, you know, where you can still probably acquire property, but mm-hmm. there's, but there's, um, you know, demand is creeping up. There's certainly, you know, the neighborhoods that are close to the urban core. That kind of seems to make the most sense to me. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. Again, if, if, the, if the problem we're trying to solve there is, you know, create, preserve affordability, create affordable home ownership options in a market that is we anticipate could we can get in right before it takes off um, I think that's been uh, the biggest if you look at uh, other CLT best practices uh, the areas we worked in in Athens but also CLTs across the country um, they sort of tend to operate in spaces where they wish they could have done that right they're, they're 10 15 years too late um, and the market's already taken off. And, and that creates, as you as we've mentioned and discussed, that creates hard problems getting control, getting site control for, for a lot of properties. And so I think in these tipping point neighborhoods, site control is obtainable. The home ownership is um, is is there, uh, and and I think it also, you know, if if you created some rental stability, rent own programs with the land trust, I think that's another opportunity similar to what we did um, in Athens, Georgia. So I, I think um, uh, for, if those are your two things. And then, and then again, even there, you know, power is, is really built in a lot of ways as well. And as appreciation comes, as markets take off in that area, you already have um, an, an entity that is owned, you know, a significant amount of a neighborhood. You know, the more focused, the better, right? If, if we're looking at areas of 500,000 properties, you know, I think that, that that's really the key is you can begin to, to make neighborhood level impacts with 30, 40, 50 properties if they're in you know, uh, close proximity to each other. So I think that's, that's going to be the key is regardless of what three paths, uh, which, which are the three problems we're trying to solve being hyper-focused and targeted, um, is going to be really, really important because, you know, again, the idea will be it's a 10 acre lot, right. And we, and we just go in and, and do a co-op commune. Right. But, um, but I think in an urban environment, as close as we can get to that, 
uh, the higher the impact it's going to have on affordability at the neighborhood level. Sure. Well, it's a very interesting subject. Of course, I wish the Binghampton CLT best of luck in identifying some resources and some new. They were able to partner with United Housing on that first project. I think United Housing helped them, you know, get control over the property and then get some resources for demoing it. Um, and um, but it's going to take more than that to, you know, to really build the scale. So um, ho- hopefully they'll be able to do that because I really feel like the timing is good for that kind of uh, structure to come into Memphis uh, and work in some of these neighborhoods that are starting to uh, become a little less affordable, but are still where there's still opportunities for, for um, you know, low and moderate income families. Yeah. Yeah. I think building those structures, building those processes and figuring out what the CLT framework will look like in the Memphis market um, is, yeah, it's going to be really exciting to to see that happen and how it hopefully spreads to spreads across the city. So. Okay. Well, I've been talking to Austin Harrison, who's one of our regular commentators and a local community development consultant here in Memphis. So thanks for coming back on the show, Austin. Thanks for having me, Emily. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.